With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. This is your MC and musical tour guide, Big Papa Stampley. Welcome to the Gallant Goose and Friends a weekly production of the Gallant Goose Radio Network airing live from coast to coast and around the world on Thursday nights at 6.45 Eastern here on TalkShoe.com, program number 139-335. The primary focus of this interactive program is to discuss mortgage foreclosure defense and attack strategies and related homeowner issues with our guests and callers. We come to you from the birthplace of the American Bar Association and the home of Abraham Lincoln, Al Capone, The Untouchables, and Operation Greylord, where the motto is, vote early, vote often, and according to some politicians, even when you're dead. Here you'll find general information about home loans and ownership, notes and mortgages, as well as pointers on lenders, banks, funding, securitization, regulations, titles, credit damage, and more plus different forms of resolution when things go wrong between homeowners and lenders, including RESPA, FDCPA, and Tiller Rescission. With the help of our guests, we'll try and find general answers to your questions on these and other popular topics. Now please remember, this program is for general information only. No official advice regarding accounting, law, taxes, or other regulated services given here. If you need a lawyer or accountant, please hire one authorized to work in your state. This is your MC and musical tour guide, Big Papa Stanley, reminding y'all, when it comes to saving your house, don't let the banker blues stop you from getting all your clues. We thank y'all for being here tonight. Let's try and help each other. Now please welcome the host of the show, Greg DeGoose. Welcome, everyone, to episode 37 of the Gallant Goose and Friends here on Talk Shoe number 139-335. Today is Thursday, June 9th, 2016. We appreciate you all being here. Please keep passing the word along to your friends and family so our flock can grow. Our topic for tonight is unconscionable contracts, a deal you can't refuse, or how to get crazy glue adhesion terms off your hands without losing a pound of flesh. Almost every deal a consumer is offered today by banks and other large corporations has unconscionable terms or adhesion clauses or what you might call take-it-or-leave-it terms. In any other form of business, these terms would be ruled unenforceable in a court of equity and stricken or modified. But when it comes to banks, it seems the courts are reluctant to do anything to allow for a remedy. Tonight, for the first time on this program, we are fortunate enough to have with us consumer advocate and lawyer, James R. Ackley. To simply call Randy just another Florida attorney would be like calling the sun just another star. His knowledge and 29 years of experience has taken him around the world, dealing with legal and humanitarian disasters and crises, giving him insights and problem-solving skills which are second to none. Randy has some great ideas that you might find useful, 
thought-provoking and interesting. So maybe he even has a solution or two. But before we get ahead of ourselves, a few important words. The Gallon Goose is not associated with any other program, law firm, accounting firm, or any other legal accounting or other licensed professional entity and is the sole responsibility of the private group of friends which constitute it. All opinions expressed are those of the participants alone and no warranties expressed or implied. This call is being recorded for rebroadcast, so we do not recommend disclosing your private contact information. To contact or be contacted by other participants on this call, please email the host and we'll do our best to connect you offline. To hear past recordings, just go to www.talkshoe.com forward slash tc forward slash 139335 and select the episode. Also, to read the chat text from any past show, just go to www.chatgrabber.com. Type in our show number 139335 and select the episode. If you would like to receive a weekly email notifying you of the program, please email the host at thegallongoose at gmail.com with the subject line, Please add me to the goose. To be removed from the mailing list, use the subject line, Please pluck my goose. Welcome back, everyone. Remember, justice should be blind, not you. Realize that you are as powerful as the tools that you master. So don't forget to check out some of those tools at www.howtowinincourt.com slash win slash gallantgoose. And for those of you experiencing collectors or court cases that are messing with your credit scores, please remember to go to www.fixmyreport.com for a fast, easy, and final solution to credit score and credit damage issues. For those of you who don't already know, here's a little bit about our guest. A native of Moline, Illinois, James R. Ackley, who prefers to go by Randy, received his Bachelor's of Science from the University of Miami in 1982 with a double major in Marine Science and Geology, and continued on at University of Miami School of Law to receive his Doctorate of Law in 1985 with honors. While a senior trial attorney at ICE Legal, Randy was part of a team that broke open the RoboSigner scandal in Florida foreclosure cases, exposing that scandalous behavior by lenders and mortgage service companies. Then, at the law offices of Evan M. Rosen, a leading law firm in the defense of foreclosure and unfair debt collection, he further mastered his craft fighting for the rights of homeowners and other injured parties by lenders, servicers, and other large corporations, all the while striving to speak truth to power. He now operates his own firm in West Palm Beach, Florida, the law offices of James R. Ackley. As an attorney, he is rated AV, which is a very high rating. Randy's one of those unique people that runs toward disasters to see how he can help instead of fleeing. This is evident from his many years with the American Red Cross. This personal philosophy of being of service is carried forward in his work now as an attorney and advocate for the American homeowner, who has been made an underdog and a victim by design within a predatory system of banking where he or she has almost no voice or opportunity for getting a truly equitable deal. Randy is trying to help these people get that voice. So, without further ado, let's please welcome our guest to the show tonight, Randy Ackley. Hello, Randy. Are you there? Hi, Greg. Thanks very much. I'm I'm here. Okay, terrific. How are you doing tonight down there? <laughs> Fine. It's a rainy day, but it's not not too bad. It's not uh, bad weather. Just kind of gloomy. Well, I remembered uh, from a previous call we had, uh, you mentioned that most people in America still don't understand that homeowners defending foreclosures 
are the victims of what I think you called a syndicate, syndicated criminal enterprise, right? Yeah, I sure did. I, I, you know, it, it, it's evident from dealing with, with talking with people around the community who aren't involved with foreclosure that a lot of people still don't understand just what the dynamics were that occurred in 2006, 7, 8, 9, when the securitization scandal broke and the, the economy fell into it. Um, most of us uh, were raised thinking that the, the system was set up in a way that you wouldn't be given a mortgage unless you could afford it. And very few people, and, and, and unfortunately this includes the judges now, uh, very few people understand that that system no longer exists and certainly didn't exist in 2005, 6, 7. Um, when they started selling mortgages and ignoring the qualifications of people, when they started inflating the value of the homes well above what true market was by getting appraisers to give false appraisals, um, they set up everybody. And the few people or the, those people who got caught up in it and are now being foreclosed on, very few of my clients entered into the situation knowing that they, they, they couldn't pay it and were trying to take advantage of the system. The vast majority of my clients and the people I know in foreclosure are people who were victimized by this effort by the industry to maximize profits at, at, you know, at the expense of homeowners. Well, what about homeowners that are still keeping up with their payments and that are not in foreclosure? Are they also victims? Oh, absolutely. If you consider that how many people out there are still paying mortgages, and, and frankly, it's much better to avoid foreclosure and continue paying your mortgage if you can than to fall into foreclosure. But how many people are, are, are now underwater as a result of the collapse of the value in, in the homes and their markets? That's not, that's not an accident. That wasn't caused by natural forces. Um, in, in many cases, uh, market, home values that were inflated because the industry wanted the highest possible mortgages uh, so that they could make the most possible money off of each of those mortgages. And so that artificially raised up the value of the homes in whole markets. So when you talk about people who are currently paying their mortgages and are doing a great job at it, and they, they deserve credit for that, the fact is they may be paying mortgages that are well higher, much higher than they should be because the value of their home when they bought it wasn't necessarily reflected in the appraisals. In fact, appraisals were almost certainly, in many cases, well above what they should have been under the market, and that people shouldn't have been asked to pay those higher mortgages, and they shouldn't be asked to pay those mortgages today, except that they, accept, they, they accepted the money, they took, took the mortgage, and now they're, they're trying to do what's right and pay off their mortgages as well as they can. It comes back again to those people who are suffering foreclosure. Most of my clients haven't decided just to stop paying the mortgage out, out of a fit of pique, most of my clients are not paying the mortgage because, frankly, the, 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 they were relying on the market to continue growing when they invested in their homes. They assumed that their investment in the real estate would, would not turn into an underwater uh, uh, crisis. So they're not, they didn't voluntarily fall into foreclosure. They're in foreclosure because the market has forced them into foreclosure and the recession has forced them into foreclosure. I have a friend up here in the Chicago area that's got a house I think they paid in 2006, $900,000 for the thing. And at today's market value, if you go to Zillow or anything else, it's $600,000. That's amazing. 
That's a $300,000, 33% drop. Greg, the sad reality is that's not an unusual scenario. I talked to uh, I talked to a homeowner just last week whose house was now worth fifty nine thousand dollars. He bought it at one hundred and sixty thousand dollars, and the 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 other issues that they were involved in his case included the fact that the the market was well created because of these, and we believe because of these false appraisals. The he showed up for closing, and this is a classic. This is something that you know we we raise this example as an example of behavior by the industry that's unconscionable, and, and we'll get into the unconscionable contracts in a few moments, but I think it's evident on its face what I'm talking about here. He had gone through all of the process of qualifying for a loan. He had been told he qualified for a 30-year fixed-rate loan at a reasonable interest rate. He showed up at closing, and they told him, no, we're not going to give you a 30-year fixed-rate loan. We're going to give you a 15-year uh, I'm sorry, not a 15-year. It was a 525 loan. So in five years, he's only paying interest for the first five years, and in five years, he has to start paying interest and principal, and it just balloons to an outrageous amount that he had to pay monthly. But at that point, it's too late. And the industry knows once the borrowers are in the closing, most of them are committed. They're not able to back out because they're not in a position to find another home. They put a deposit down on this home, and it's, it's a bait-and-switch, a classic bait-and-switch, and it's done industry-wide. This also brings me back to this whole issue of the syndicated uh, crime. When I when I talk about that, it's not just that the, uh, uh, it's, it's that all parts of the process, when they inflated the values of the homes, when they bait and switched the, the the homeowners and got them into loans that were much more profitable for the mortgage brokers and the originators, but very bad loans for the borrowers, and, and the borrowers were basically left with no choice once they got to closing. When they gave them these contracts that were adhesion contracts, take-it-or-leave-it contracts, they had to accept the terms or they wouldn't get the house. Um, and then as the process went on, they went back to the, borrow, to, to the lenders and said, hey, can you adjust this because everything has collapsed? My house isn't worth what I'm paying on it. And they were told, no, we can't do that. Or alternatively, they were told, hey, you know, stop paying your mortgage for two or three months. And uh, when you fall behind, we'll give you a loan mod. And then they didn't. They just foreclosed again and again and again. Or they pretended to go through that, and I guess they call that double tracking, where they had one group working on the foreclosure and the other group pretending to do a mod. Absolutely. And they feigned ignorance. They said, oh, no, we, we just, one side of the house didn't know what the other side of the house was doing. That's not true. They set up the system. They controlled the system. They had absolute control. They entered into the national mortgage settlement with the, the, the supposedly to, to help help solve the situation when, in fact, it just funds the banks to get through this crisis themselves. It really didn't help homeowners very much. Um, the whole situation has been, been incredible. And I come back to the syndicated crime when I point to the, to the whole robo-signer uh, situation where they had they – had, both the, the, the servicers and the, their attorneys had mills set up that were wholesale fabricating affidavits to support summary judgments or, or endorsements that weren't valid, uh, endorsements that were created to pretend to transfer from one entity to another, in many cases using MERS as a, as, as a front, um, or they were falsely creating uh, notarizing documents that had that were in fact not notarized because they never saw anybody sign the document. They just had a system set up like a factory. Um, and even we've even had evidence where uh, the, the loan documents, the payment schedules were being uh, offshore, created by offshore entities 
and the banks trying to enforce those loans are have no idea whether they're accurate or not. Um, again and again and again, the system was set up to, to, to exploit the homeowners to the maximum extent possible. And also, by the way, to exploit the investors who are investing in, in these uh, derivatives and the securitized loans. The homeowners are victims here, but they're not the only victims. The pension funds and the, the, the other investors were also victimized. There, there are just so many elements to it. Um, I mean, it starts at the very beginning of the process when they, uh, in, some, in some of my clients that I have actually, it started as they were driving down the street and saw billboards um, with one lender advertising and development. Well, now that lender denies any responsibility for the development. It all goes to the builder, but it was a lender's billboard that lured the homeowner in to invest in the property. You start there. You have the appraisers that were, were artificially inflating values to increase the value of the mortgages. You have uh, the mortgage brokers uh, luring people in with bait-and-switch tactics, uh, telling them they had reasonable fixed-rate loans, and then when they got in, they were given uh, adjustable-rate loans that ballooned at outrageous rates, and nobody could have kept up with it, except if their, their real estate had continued to grow in value. Um, you had... Lenders then that were changing hands, they were selling the promissory notes, and the subsequent servicers were not notifying the borrowers that, that in fact, the loan was being sold and that they had a responsibility to pay the loan, the, the payments to a subsequent servicer. You had servicers then refusing to assist homeowners by, by adjusting the monthly payments to reflect a reasonable value of the mortgage instead of the inflated value of the mortgage. Um, and then you had this, again, this bait-and-switch process where, the, the lenders and services were advising homeowners, and, and again, this is something that happened on a very high frequency, where they told the borrowers, hey, fall two or three months behind in your loan, and then we can consider you for a loan mod or even give you a loan mod, but we won't even consider you unless you go in default on your loan. And most borrowers are like me. We don't do finance as a regular thing. We're unsophisticated in financial matters. So when somebody tells us to do something, who's the lender, who is supposedly the authority, we do what they tell us. And again and again and again, clients have come to me and told me, hey, I did what they told me, now they're foreclosing. Um, and then you get again to these elements where they, 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 they falsified affidavits to, to foreclose. They falsified uh, assignments of mortgage. Uh, pretending to assign the mortgage from one servicer to another, in some cases skipping servicers, where they use MERS as a front to, to, to supposedly justify this, this late assignment of mortgage, where they falsified endorsements, where they falsified uh, um, 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 the, the documents to, to, to support summary judgment again and again and again. They had, they had syndicated and industrialized this process of exploiting homeowners again and again and again. And they made money at virtually every step because the, the servicers made money when they, they entered into the loan. The servicers made money when they sold the loan to another servicer. The servicer who, who experienced the default got ins gets insurance payments for it. Um, and, and now when they're fighting the foreclosure, they're getting paid to, to fight the foreclosure. It's insane how, how the true victims in this process are not the industry, it's not the banks. It's absolutely the defendants in the foreclosure cases. And one of the tragedies is we as defense counsel, as the defense bar, are not to raise the awareness of the judges to recognize that, at least in Florida. Now, that's a, that's a great general introduction to the situation and a lot of folks on the call might already be familiar with that some of them might just be coming into 
awareness about this themselves. But So let's get into the main area of the conversation for tonight. Uh, what is an unconscionable contract by definition, and can you hit on some of the most common terms or conditions that might fall into that category, including adhesion, which might bind a party uh, to a contract without the ability to negotiate on a point? If a contract is unconscionable, and I'm talking, and this is a very important message to the national audience uh, and possibly beyond the country, but for the lawyer, and my experience is for the trial. Um, so when I think about Florida law, if somebody is dealing to find an attorney and guidance in their jurisdiction, but, but unconscionability means that it shocks the conscience. It's something that that the courts won't enforce. So a, a couple of cases uh, that speak to this in Florida are AmeriFirst Federal Savings and Loan Association versus Century 21 Commodore Plaza. It's a 1982 case um, out of the third district in Florida, which is Miami and, and the Keys. And it's a very short quote, but it, it gets right to the point. It is axiomatic that a court of equity may refuse to foreclose a mortgage when an acceleration of the due date makes acceleration unconscionable and foreclosure inequitable and unjust. And another case that speaks to, to the unenforceability of unconscionable contracts is Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation versus Taylor. It's a first district case. It's from 1975. And that case states, a court of equity may refuse to foreclose a mortgage when an acceleration of the due date of the debt would be an inequitable or unjust result, and the circumstances would render the accelerated unconscionable, acceleration unconscionable. And, and the key here is acceleration means instead of following the 15 or 30-year schedule of payments, they're all, or we take your home, we foreclose. That's what acceleration is. Now, to get back to what is unconscionable a case that speaks to it directly, Steinhardt versus Rudolph. This is another third district. Okay. It, it, it has a great quote that explains unconscionability, I think, effectively. The law in Florida is clear that an unconscionable contract or an unconscionable term therein will not be enforced by a court of equity. It seems to be established by the authorities that where it is perfectly plain to the court that one party to a contract has overreached the other and has gained an unjust and undeserved advantage which it would be inequitable to permit him to enforce that a court of equity will not hesitate to interfere even though the victimized parties owe their predicament largely to their own stupidity and carelessness. Stated differently, if a contract or term thereof is unconscionable at the time the contract is made, a court may refuse to enforce the contract or may enforce the remainder of the contract without the unconscionable term or may so limit the application of any unconscionable term as unconscionable results. Just, I mean, to, 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 and if it shocks your conscience, the court has the right not to enforce part of the contract is unconscionable. All right, Randy, just generally speaking here uh, on a technical side, uh, we're still experiencing some difficulties with you coming in and out with your signal, and uh, a couple people have also commented on the chat board to that effect. All right, also, uh, as, as long as I'm jumped in here, uh, for anybody who is on the chat board or would like to go back and look, 
I posted a link to a Dropbox zip file that contains the uh, files that Randy is referring to this evening. So you can all go back and download that zip file and open it up and uh, take a look at the examples that he's talking about. All right, please go ahead. Greg, one of the points that, or one of the issues that you highlighted was uh, the existence of adhesion contracts. Um, and so what I wanted to, to do is visit adhesion contracts. It oftentimes is enforceable. Um, but it in it, in and of itself does not but, but it, it uh, this is from a case Gainesville Healthcare Center Inc. versus Weston. It's a nineteen um or I'm sorry, a two thousand three case uh, out of the first district. And I think it has a great explanation of an adhesion contract and its relevance. Quote, an adhesion contract is defined as a standardized contract form offered to consumers of goods and services on essentially a take-it-or-leave-it basis without affording the consumer a realistic opportunity to bargain and under such conditions that the consumer cannot obtain the desired product or services except by acquiescing in the form contract. The fact that a contract is one of adhesion is a strong indicator that the contract is procedurally un unconscionable because it suggests an absence of meaningful choice. Think of that in the context of a real estate closing. What choice a home buyer has when they're sitting at that closing? They have none. In fact, in most cases, they even suggest changing terms on the mortgage or the, the promissory note. Uh, it's a it's a it's a it's a deal break. So again and again and again, homeowners have been subjected to adhesion contracts, which in and of themselves don't render the the whole deal unconscionable. But they're a strong indicator that the deal is unconscionable. And then when you add to the mix, I think the issues like the bait and switch tactic, where they were promised one loan and they get there, and the adhesion contract they're offered is an entirely different kind of loan that's much worse for the borrower. And when they get there and when they, when they find that the value of the home that they've agreed to buy based on an appraisal is based on an appraisal that is artificially inflated to, to increase the cost of the house but doesn't reflect the value of the house. And when they are able to show the court that they were told to fall behind in order to be considered for a loan mod and that led to the default or that the... Uh, servicer changed hands, the, the, so the, the, the promissory note changed hands multiple times and they weren't properly informed of those changes. All of these factors add up to, I think, what can be a compelling argument that the whole package is unconscionable and the court shouldn't enforce it, certainly shouldn't enforce foreclosure and should allow the, the, the borrower to continue paying on the monthly schedule. Now, here, here's a problem that we often face in court. The, the, the judge has often asked, Hey, when was the last time you paid on this mortgage? Or the plaintiff's counsel will point out, the last time they paid on this mortgage was two, three years ago. Well, the reality is that's not under the control of the borrower. At some point, the lender has said, we're not going to accept payments anymore. So again, this, this comes back to, they keep trying to make it look like the defendants in foreclosure are irresponsible and aren't, aren't upholding their ends of the deal. Well, the fact is, they are, the, the deal was unconscionable. The deal that they are being asked to support and to, to honor has never been honorable. 
and it's there's no reason why the court should enforce it at this point. And I think on a case-by-case basis, and, and that's another issue, each case stands on its own merits. Um, on a case-by-case basis, we need to consider whether we need to raise up these issues and use them in our defense of, 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 of foreclosure. Are there any other uh, points you can think of right now that typically could be considered unconscionable? I, I think I've hit most of them that, that, that occur. I know there are others. You mentioned the appraisal. You mentioned the bait and switch. You mentioned, um, you know, acceleration. The adhesion itself. Yeah, right. Oh, adhesion. of course, there's the whole. There are all of the the standard defenses feed into this. For instance, if the if the plaintiff isn't holding or isn't fulfilling its Fulfill- obligations on the contract. So, for instance, if it's not satisfying the conditions precedent to foreclose. In the paragraph 22 requirement for a notice of acceleration in many mortgages. Um, in the FHA mortgages, the obligation to have a face-to-face con- um, meeting or conference with a, a, for um, counseling on, on the mortgage. Uh, those, are, those are absolute requirements by the, the party that supposedly has the mortgage and the obligations to, or the right to enforce the mortgage. They have obligations as well. I think those those all feed into the unconscionable issue. They all add elements that are unconscionable. When the when the when the bank is not fulfilling its obligations, um, that speaks to it as well. So, in certain cases, you might be better off trying to enforce the terms of the contract. Oh, many of our defenses are based on the terms of the contract. They're trying to enforce a contract, and they have an obligation to to give you notice of acceleration and, and that you have 30 days uh, to, 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 to bring it current or they'll accelerate. When they don't do that and they bring the foreclosure without giving you notice, that's absolutely enforcing the terms of the contract. They have an absolute obligation to do that if it's in the mortgage. Um, when we talk about um, rescission, for instance, I mean, that's another issue we haven't talked about tonight, but and it's not directly related to unconscionability, but it's one of the issues in, in rescission is that in many, many cases, the, the originator of the loan failed to comply with the term, terms of, the, uh, of TILA, failed to give notice of the right to rescind the contract. Now, that's an absolute requirement. And as we know, in the Jezinoski case, has found that it's absolutely enforceable. They have an obligation to give you the notice that you have three days to rescind without penalty, uh, the contract when you enter into the mortgage. If they fail to give you that that notice, they have you have three years to rescind. Um, if they fail to give you the notice of right to rescission, but three years from the date of consummation of the deal. Now that's another issue that we're we're, we're kind of exploring. We've got to figure out how do we show whether the deal has been consummated or not. And uh, it's not quite as clear cut as it might seem. I'd mentioned on the issue of consummation that. Uh um, just by virtue of serendipity, uh, I have a family member who works in the banking industry presently uh, in the mortgage origination department. And one of the things that their bank is doing now is adding a new piece of paper to the closing package where the homeowners that are sitting there to take out the loan acknowledge that this is the moment of consummation regardless of anything else. <laughs> That's uh, actually that makes sense given the current circumstances and the uncertainty towards when the deal is consummated. 
I mean, um, because there are some arguments that can be made that it's never if it hasn't been consummated, that three-day time limit and the three-year time limit don't run. And so anybody who's entered into a mortgage that hasn't been consummated should have the right to rescind. I know, but they could actually go on and never give the loan. <laughs> but they said that it was consummated. You know, that's pretty funny. Right, absolutely. It's always about getting people you know, to I, I, admit things that they shouldn't. Well, you know, in one particular case that I've been talking with a client that uh, he has proof that he's requested the documents from the closing. He never got them. Now, there's an interesting question. If they've never sent him the documents that have concluded the deal, is the deal concluded? Right. I don't know. So if you can find terms that, which in any other case might be considered unconscionable within the deal, how do you get the judge to sit up and pay attention instead of just denying your defense outright? Well, that's a good question, and it's not an easy answer. You know, the the unconscionability was raised frequently initially, when the, the but, but we didn't effectively make the argument. We've got to raise them as affirmative defenses. I think they're, it's a, a critical element of our argument. Um, I've had some people argue that if you can prove the contract is unconscionable, you may be able to prove that the judge never had subject matter jurisdiction and argue that the judgment was void. I, I'm, I'm thinking that's a difficult argument, and I'm, I'm, I'm neither, I haven't been sold on it, but I, I haven't discarded it either. I think there's, it's something we need to explore and look at carefully. Um, and again, this comes down to jurisdiction by jurisdiction. The law is going to be interpreted differently, um, certainly state to state, and within the federal system, district to district and, and circuit uh, court uh, of appeal to circuit court of appeal. So until the Supreme Court rules on, on a particular issue, there, there are going to be variations. So you really do need to have a jurisdiction-specific interpretation of the arguments. How hard is it to demonstrate and prove unclean hands on the part of the banking system in any particular case, from, in your experience? I think it's very hard. I've often been raising unclean hands as a defense. Um, and based on a number of different uh, issues, specifically this whole thing with the uh, bait and switch, but also with the misleading fall, fall three, mo three months behind and, and we'll give you a loan mod. Um, and the judges... Uh, honestly, and again, I have to say this, I don't think the judges are are entering court with ill intent. I just think that we're not doing a great job as defense counsel of showing them just how bad things are uh, by many of the, the, the lenders and plaintiffs. One wonderful uh, example, on the other hand, of a team that was able to show unclean hands is the recent case out of Miami. Um, Judge Butchko uh, entered an opinion... Uh, a, a, a dis, uh, granting dismissal, uh, involuntary dismissal in the case HSBC Bank versus Joseph Bousset, where she articulated very clearly the unclean hands uh, in this case. And in that case, she highlighted a number of key issues that were wonderful. Uh, for instance, this whole idea that the assignment of mortgage um, couldn't, in fact, reflect a valid transaction and, and had to be a, a, a false un, uh, assignment of mortgage or the fact that the plaintiffs had failed to comply with simple discovery orders of the court um, also uh, led to part of that decision. But uh, 
the, another thing that Judge Butchko did, in her opinion, was enforce the standard uh, basic evidence rule to show that the, that they had a, a, a basis to uh, have an exception to the rule against the admission of hearsay for business records, and the fact that they failed to do that. I mean, all of these things, but her opinion was wonderful, um, and, but, but the lead-off issue was unclean hands. And the, Bruce Jacobs was, I think, defense counsel in that case deserves a great deal of credit for having gotten that opinion entered and gotten Judge Butchko's support. And Judge Butchko deserves a great deal of credit for having articulated as clearly as she did in her opinion uh, how badly the plaintiff uh, has failed. And, and by the way, Auckland was the servicer in that case. Um, and, and that's important. You know, the, the servicers... The, the servicers, uh, you know, have not properly vet, vet, vetted the documents from a prior servicer, and that led to a big part of that opinion. Um, but the unclean hands is difficult to show, and it's difficult to get the judge to, to, to agree to, um, but, but it's a, a valid defense and an important defense. You mentioned uh, mortgage assignments, and most homeowners and borrowers are familiar that uh, there's an assignment that gets recorded or multiple assignments to get recorded on their land records in their county. But um, as almost an antithesis to that, I think we described this prior as uh, looking at it as a, a two-vehicle train, a locomotive and a caboose. And in most, most states that I'm aware of, um, the rule is that the mortgage follows the note because the mortgage is the security interest on the note. So it, the security interest can only go wherever the locomotive goes, and it gets pulled down the track, which brings into question how can we be doing mortgage assignments without making sure that the note was actually being pulled. It's, it's almost like letting everybody know where the caboose is but not letting them know where the engine is. And I wonder, I mean, I suppose back in our great-grandparents' days, it would be unconscionable to think that anybody would separate the two. But these days, the, the mortgage assignment might leave one with a presumption that the note was also being assigned in the same track. But as we know through securitization and bifurcation and everything else, that may or may not be the case. So... Is there a way to attack the assignments themselves as being invalid because they don't prove where the note was? Absolutely, but there's a very important uh, caveat to that, and that is that in many courts in Florida, the uh, districts in, Cor in Florida, the, the the ruling has become it's all under the UCC and the mortgage follows the note. So the assignment of mortgage is almost uh, an afterthought, but it can be a, a very important bit of evidence in support of the defense that the plaintiff has no right to bring the lawsuit because they don't have the mortgage, but or the note, rather. Um, one of the things to look for in the assignments of mortgage is do they, in fact, address the note at all? Um, many, many of the assignments of mortgage don't. They assign the mortgage and ignore completely the note uh, that it's supposed to secure. Um, and then this whole idea of bifurcation, we've been argue, I've been arguing frequently that you can't bifurcate and, and have it have it uh, withstand scrutiny, but but the courts have basically in Florida. Uh, I don't know about elsewhere, but in Florida have have often ruled that uh, it, the bifurcation is irrelevant. 
there is a case that was brought to my attention recently, the Carpenter versus Long Gap. Um, it's a uh, U.S. Supreme Court case that says the mortgage can have no separate existence. It cannot survive for a moment without the debt um, which the note represents. This dependent and incidental relation is the controlling consideration. The problem with Long Gap is it's an 1872 case, and so because it's such an old case, uh, it doesn't get a lot of uh, attention, and, and people say, well, the UCC has superseded, et cetera, et cetera. But I still think the, the principles it articulates are accurate. The other thing with the, the assignments of mortgages, I think you're, you're coming back to the whole point of this, this construct, this front that's been created artificially by the industry in order to avoid recording uh, documents properly and avoid the kind of um, security that we had before securitization. Um, when we knew that a mortgage was properly recorded and the note was attached to the mortgage and 99.9% .9 of foreclosures were uh, a foregone conclusion when they came to court because there were none of the issues we're facing today. But when, when the industry created MERS and MERS is this mortgage electronic registration system, um, it, it, it really has muddied the waters significantly with regard to ownership and the right to enforce a holdership. Um, you know, you can get the records of MERS, but then you have these assignments supposedly executed by MERS, and that's one of the issues that came up in the Bousset case, where, you know, you had this employee of Aquin executing an assignment purportedly on behalf of MERS on behalf, as a nominee, and they had no right to. The, 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 the nominee no, no, no longer existed. So, you know, these... These assignments of mortgage are are murky, and they they are there are issues, very significant issues arising from them, um, and they need to be very closely scrutinized in every case. Now that you mentioned MERS, um, how does MERS fit into the scheme, in your opinion, and what consequences has it brought upon the homeowner? Well, MERS was clearly created in order to avoid the need to record the many transactions that the securitization and derivatives uh, of, the, of the mortgages and the trusts, creation of the trusts have, have created. And as a result, uh, it led to real problems for, for homeowners. The, many of us believe that many of the documents that are executed by MERS should be invalid. As a result of having MERS set up, the, the, the banks and the mortgage servicers no longer record every time they transfer the, the note and mortgage from one entity to another. And as a result, um, we don't honestly have a great way of telling, and I honestly don't think that the industry knows in many cases, who truly owns uh, any particular mortgage and, and note. Um, and as a result of that, that insecurity, of that inability to tie down who actually has the right, they fall back on the UCC. Um, and argue that the promissory note is a negotiable instrument, uh, effectively a check. Uh, and But a check, the difference is a check should be determined. The amount that's due on a check should be easy to determine from the face of the check. But when, when MERS started transferring wholesale between different servicers and lost track, I think, in many cases, of, of the documents, we now are being asked to treat these checks uh, when we don't know who actually has possession of the check. So now they take copies of the checks. And, in, and now in the fourth DCA in, in Florida, 
the it's it, having a copy of that that endorsed note attached to the complaint creates a presumption that the plaintiff actually has possession of and is holder of uh, a duly endorsed note when in fact you and I know we could email endorsed notes to millions of people we could do a and no and none of them would have the true right to enforce the note or have the original but according to the the fourth DCA that creates a presumption that the person who's, who's who filed the lawsuit had the original. Um, and, and how can a defendant possibly um, have the information to show whether or not the plaintiff had the original? It's going to be very difficult for defendants to show that the plaintiff had, did not have an original note when the lawsuit was brought and had no right to bring the lawsuit. It creates real problems. Yeah, imagine walking into the uh, clerk of court with a photocopy of a $100 Federal Reserve note and a nice color copy, you know, nice thick paper, and handing it to her and saying, there you go. And you'd be, <laughs> you'd be arrested for forgery. We'd have the Secret Service on our backs immediately. Um, and yet the banking industry is doing that on a regular basis. Yeah, I mean, people don't understand sometimes that that note is a sacred instrument. It is it is unique, and it is one of a kind. And, in fact, even if you get a foreclosure, they're supposed to mail it back to you canceled. And tell me one person that's gone through a foreclosure that got their note back. No, that's a great question. Uh, it doesn't happen. Uh, they leave them in the court file for the most part, is, uh, 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 or they take it, and then God knows where yeah. it goes. But somebody else brought to my attention that, you know, with the way it's being handled, and this is one of the reasons in Florida, uh, under the Florida UCC, if you are trying to enforce a lost note account, you have to indemnify the borrower against future claims. But in reality, there could be somebody else out there who actually has the original note. That's properly endorsed. Um, and, uh, you know, okay, so the plaintiff endorsed me. They're trying to, now my credit has another lawsuit against me. There's a potential of, of future lawsuits uh, on notes that have been supposedly canceled. It, it, it really is a mess. Do you see the concept of, you've heard the term getting a free house, right? So when you really look at the whole scenario, do you see the free house being an act the attempt to get a free house, rather, being more an act of the homeowner or the bank? Well, I, I think that's a great question. I have a couple of points I'd like to raise in response to it. First of all, the banks are clearly the ones trying to steal the houses here, and they have been from the very, from the outset. Uh, they've been exploiting the, the whole industry. that has been exploiting the real estate market and the home, home house, housing market from the start of this, this whole process of securitizing and selling derivatives and creating the trust. I, I need to give a shout-out uh, to um, the Yale Law Journal, um, I, and, I, and I, 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 I will uh, try to find a site for you on this, but there's a Yale Law Journal article, if you, if you Google it, the Yale Law Journal, the, the comment that they published is called In Defense of Free Houses. And it's just a fabulous discussion of this whole idea of the so-called free houses. Because, and I think it's important, Greg, that you bring it up because that's honestly what many of the judges think they're doing. They think they're protecting uh, the, 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 the society 
from borrowers getting free houses, and they think that's a good thing. And then by doing that, they're really, and what the Yale Law Journal points out is, what they're really doing is creating a market that supports the industry in its efforts to steal the houses. And the, the really, the, the industry is the one, uh, the, the, the lenders and the servicers are the ones who are being encouraged to falsify documents to, to, to create this syndicated criminal uh, uh, enterprise uh, in order to, to take advantage of the, the real estate market and the investment market. I mean, again, I need to highlight the investors are also victims in this process. So if if the bank or the servicer attacking a homeowner after in those wonderful cases where you do get discovery if they can't prove that they are the originator on the documents ever funded the loan how is it that they can still have judges say well we'll, we'll let you have standing yeah that that's a great issue and again I I, I I'm going to do it again I, Give a shout out to Judge Butchko in Miami because she addressed this. Uh, it's, it's the best articulated opinion I've seen so far that does find that the promissory note in that case was not a negotiable instrument. And that's where the judges come off finding for the plaintiffs. By saying that the promissory note is a negotiable instrument, they don't really have to show who originated it. They don't have to show any transaction that led to uh, the plaintiff having possession of it. If they show that they're in possession of an endorsed note um, and we don't properly defend and say, look, you can't in a court of equity uh, give a, wrong, a person in wrongful possession of a negotiable instrument, uh, the house, uh, if, we, if we're unable to, to get the court to buy that, then the court is able to argue and find that the plaintiff is the rightful holder of a duly endorsed note and as such a holder of a negotiable instrument and as such has a right to enforce that instrument. And that's how the courts do it. That doesn't mean it's right. Uh, and we certainly argue again and again and again that it's not right. But uh, the courts are very um, are very quick, uh, unfortunately, to find for the plaintiffs. And I, and I think it comes back to the whole tenor of the Yale Law Journal article. They're try- they think that they're, they're protecting society from the borrowers, and in fact, it should be the other way around. They should be protecting society from an industry gone bad. Well, I mean, isn't society made up of the borrowers? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you would think, but I mean, yeah, absolutely. I. I mean, I don't know the last time that a a brick building or a piece of paper registered in the state of Delaware that is technically the corporation ever had a vote, ever, you know, had to go and buy a sandwich or, you know, join the Boy Scouts or anything else. You know, I think it seems to me well, that... I, hate, uh, to, I, I yes. hate to say it, Greg, but I, and this may sound a little bit political, but this is where I think Citizens United has done a real disservice to all of us. Well, without By empowering corporations that. to support politics, yeah, I mean, it, it really is a, a, that's another issue entirely, but yeah, it speaks to your point. Oh. Sure. Yeah, and, and, and I will only give you one sentence on that, and that is, I think Citizens United, <laughs> I think that it was a fantastic decision because it finally showed everybody what was really going on all of the time. I mean, because we're talking about legal and legious persons not men and women. And because under right. the rules of right. the Constitution, every person, 
which is a creation of the government, has equal rights, including the ones that are done on a piece of paper. And by the way, the person that they're talking to when you go to court is the one on the piece of paper on your birth certificate. They're not talking to you. They're talking to your person. And until people understand that that's going on, you can't find any laws in Congress or in any state house anywhere where they talk about how something applies to a man or a woman. You'll see it applies to all persons. And a person is not people. So that's all I wanted to say about that. Uh, moving on. Fair enough. Can you address some of the magical mortgage assignments that are done under powers of attorney by servicers like Aquin, supposedly given to them by some principal entity that might never have existed or subsequently was closed or dissolved under bankruptcy? And these things are recorded on people's land records years later after these things are dead. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is a critical issue in defending uh, foreclosure. You need to look very carefully at these powers of attorney. You know, for a long time, I think attorneys were just assuming that they were proper and that the bank had the right. But if you read them carefully, in some cases, frankly, the services simply don't have the right to do what they're doing. In other cases, you've got exactly like you're saying, uh, and again, in Miami, where the originator of the loan no longer existed. In fact, it ceased to exist years before. And the judge properly found that this assignment of mortgage created, I think, four years after the the entity had ceased to exist, supposedly on behalf of that entity, the judge realized this is not right. This cannot happen. The problem is most judges don't get it. They don't see that this is an improper uh, assignment. It's a not it's a, it's void ab initio. It's not a valid assignment at all because the entity didn't exist to make the transfer. Even if MERS exists to, to supposedly do it on behalf of the entity, if the entity no longer exists, it doesn't work. Um, and so, yeah, this has to be addressed. It has to be looked at very carefully in defending the case. Um, and it's definitely an argument that has to be raised as an affirmative defense uh, when, it, when it's there. When I researched this, uh, what I found was there is like one or two exceptions that are allowed, and that is if the party who has received the power of attorney to act on another party's behalf doesn't know that they're dead, and they did it in good conscience, that that might still be valid. Because, But then as soon as you find out, then you've got to stop action. And, I mean, I can't imagine that Aquin didn't know that New Century Mortgage died in 2007 and was finally buried in 2009 and then continued to do assignments on their behalf in 2010 and 2011 and 2012 and 2013. And as a matter of fact, this year, they keep doing it. Right. It's got to have some element of criminal intent, doesn't it? Yeah, but don't you guys find that pretty interesting, huh? We make a joke during our introduction where uh, here in Cook County, Illinois, there's this motto of vote early, vote often, even when you're dead. And uh, sometimes I think that uh, these banks have inherited that and they don't just use it as a joke anymore. <laughs> I know there was one thing you said. We talked about this that... Uh, you may or may not know how to answer this, but you thought it was a good question. And that was, 
What about like in California with the security first rule, where if the so-called lender is made whole, even by way of an insurance or a derivative program or something else, that they lose their claim on the collateral and the house returns to the grantor homeowner by reversionary interest and right. Um, I don't know how many other states have a rule like that, but uh, that seems kind of interesting. I know that I've been, we've been raising it as an affirmative defense here, uh, and, and frankly, I, some of the attorneys I know are, are actually they stopped even putting it in as affirmative defenses in Florida because it's not gaining any traction. The judges haven't cared about it. I don't know that we have a security first rule, but that's an important key point here, and that is that this comes back to you need to know the jurisdiction and the law and the rules and, and the case law in your jurisdiction. It's very important because while that's not necessarily going to carry the day in, in Florida, I have no idea how, how it will fly in other jurisdictions. So I think it's very important that folks, you know, have local jurisdiction and, and an understanding of local laws and rules procedures as they move forward. All righty. To do a quick wrap-up, again, our main topic here was unconscionable contracts. What's your uh, closing advice for, for this part of the show for everybody to think about? Well, I think the, the key thing is look at it as a package as a whole is how I'm going to start proceeding on the unconscionability issue. Uh, I don't think any one issue will carry the day for the, the whole contract. But I think that if you look at the number of ways and in case-by-case basis, how many ways there have been acts that were unconscionable that would add up to, to render the whole contract, the whole mortgage unconscionable, or at least the, the provisions that allow for foreclosure. I think that's how how to approach it. All right. Um, if you're good with that, uh, let's take a short two-minute break. Let everybody uh, get their heads together. Uh, when we come back from this small break, everybody, please remember, if you're on the telephone, press star 8 on your telephone to get into the queue. Connecticut, you're still in position 1, and we haven't forgotten about you. Um, so when we come back with... Uh, Randy Ackley, uh, we will be delighted. And, oh, if you're on the chat board, uh, we'll try to read your questions if you type them in, okay? Alrighty, so we'll be back in a couple minutes. Welcome to the Gallant Goose and Friends, a weekly production of the Gallant Goose Radio Network, airing live from coast to coast and around the world on Thursday nights at 645 Eastern here on TalkShoe.com, program number 139335. This is your MC and musical tour guide, Big Papa Stanley, reminding y'all, when it comes to saving your house, don't let the banker blues stop you from getting all your clues. The primary focus of this interactive program is to discuss mortgage foreclosure defense and attack strategies and related homeowner issues with our guests and callers. We come to you from the birthplace of the American Bar Association and the home of Abraham Lincoln, Al Capone, the Untouchables, and Operation Greylord, where the motto is, vote early, vote often, and according to some politicians, even when you're dead. Here you'll find general information about home loans and ownership, notes and mortgages, as well as pointers on lenders, banks, funding, securitization, regulations, titles, credit damage, and more, plus different forms of resolution when things go wrong between homeowners and lenders, including RESPA, FDCPA, and TILA rescission. 
With the help of our guests, we'll try and find general answers to your questions on these and other popular topics. Now please remember, this program is for general information only. No official advice regarding accounting, law, taxes, or other regulated services given here. If you need a lawyer or accountant, please hire one authorized to work in your state. Thank y'all for being here tonight. Let's try and help each other. Welcome back, everybody, uh, to this episode, number 37 of the Gallant Goose and Friends, with our special guest, consumer advocate and Florida lawyer, James R. Randy Ackley. Um, as a reminder, if you'd like to be into the queue and ask a question, please press star 8 on your phone and you'll raise your hand. And we will watch for you and uh, get your questions to Randy in the order in which you are in the queue. Again, if you're on the chat board, uh, please go ahead and type a question in, and we will try our best to get them read into the program. Randy, are you there? I'm here, Greg. All right, terrific. Uh, Randy, we're going to go to Connecticut for your first question here. Hello, Connecticut. Please state your name, and what's your question for Randy? Hi there, uh, this is Bob, and uh, I have two questions. Uh, the first one is when I just wanted to share something with Aquin, and, and we've all seen this in the in the foreclosure defense, and that is the famous affidavit of, of debt, which is always signed off by somebody who claims to be something along the line of vice president loan documentation, you know, and there's no such thing, of course, but... I think Select Portfolio Servicing up in Utah is the one that really got that one started. But here's one done by Aquin, which has a stamp on it. And the stamp says, I am a contract management coordinator. They actually stamp that in. That's an interesting position. Never heard of that one. That's a new one from Aquin. And this particular affidavit of debt is one where Aquin claims to be involved with our old friends, Deutsche Bank National Trust Company, and for the Blah Blah Trust, you know, with a big long name. And when you look through it, there's, of course, all the usual numbers done with mathematical precision, which they, of course, know everything about, notwithstanding that they're at least two successor servicers away from the beginning of this. And then on the very last one, it says, the tail end of this, on account of defendants' default under the note and mortgage suit upon herein, Aquin retained the attorneys of record and authorized the filing of this action. And it goes on from there. And when you think about that, that's a breathtaking comment. Because that means that the attorneys who are busy suing the defendant and standing up in court have never met, had any conversation with, and have no retainer agreement with Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank may not even know that this lawsuit's ever been filed. And yet, there they are, standing in court, compliments of our good friends at Aquin. <laughs> I mean, you have to laugh. You know? How can anybody be so unbelievably stupid as to hang that one in front of the judge? I don't, I don't uh, 
I don't know if you have a power of attorney uh, between Aquin and Deutsche Bank, but that may be how they're doing it. And the you know, and not naming any particular parties here, but one of the issues that we talked about earlier is you've got to look at the powers of attorney very carefully to see if the servicers are in fact authorized to do to bring a lawsuit if they're the ones that brought the lawsuit. It's not an unusual. Uh, 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 scenario, Paul. We see it all the time where the servicers bring the lawsuit on behalf of the owner of the the supposed owner of the note and mortgage. Um, where we have some get some tread uh, some friction is when we try to find out if in fact um, the owner is in fact the owner and is in fact the holder of the note with the right to enforce a negotiable instrument. If in fact it's a negotiable instrument, those are issues that are definitely areas that need to be explored. And if, uh, and if uh, appropriate, affirmative defenses need to be raised. Well, yeah, but I'm focusing on a slightly different aspect of this, and that is that the attorney bringing the suit has to be in some form of relationship uh, as a master and servant relationship with the plaintiff. So otherwise, the suit would have to be brought by Aquila. And you can't go around saying, well, you know, I have a power of attorney that gives me the authority to do it, but then bring a suit in the name of someone else, and none of that is revealed to either the court or the defendant. It's, a, you, it's a great point. In, yeah, when you look at, the, fact, at the, when, when you look at the pleadings, the allegation doesn't say anything about this suit is brought by Aquin authorized servicer pursuant to a power of attorney uh, on behalf of Deutsche Bank of the blah blah trust, which by itself is another you know mischaracterization. But I don't want to get into that on the air because I know the banks tend to listen into some of these conversations. But getting down to the specifics, Aquin has no ability to sue in somebody else's name, hire a lawyer to sue in somebody else's name, and the other party, the party that they're being, whose name they're being sued in, doesn't even know about the lawsuit. Now, that just can't happen. So that's a fraud on the court. But let me move on past that, and I wanted to bring up another issue because we've been talking today about unconscionability. There's a sort of a spin-off tangent to that. And that is the concept of raising oppression as a, as a specific special defense. Because if a lender refuses to take your money, but proceeds to try to oppress you by suing you and kicking you out of your house, taking title away, are those acts of oppression? Are those, they may be conscionable or unconscionable, who knows, but they're certainly oppressive. Because after all, a lender is not in the business of taking property. A lender is in the business of taking money. So if money is offered, I would argue it has to be accepted. And the failure to accept money becomes by itself an act of oppression. Now I raise this issue because this surfaced in a, an extraordinary case here in New England whereby the bank simply stopped taking the customer's money. I, know, I realize this sounds astounding to you, but there's actually a customer who writes a check, hand carries it to the bank every month, hands it into the teller, gets a teller's receipt, and then the check goes into the back office, and they say, we're not going to cash it. Or they cash it, and they send them a cashier's check back. They say, we don't want your money, but we're going to go sue you. The most extraordinary situation, and this has been kicking around in a raging series of court battles, of course, and the last judge to come on said, 
He articulated in a very lengthy decision that went on for about 17 pages. He said, it appears that the bank is engaged in acts of oppression. Now, oppression was not pled. But the judge kind of very kindly gave us a little roadmap on how to revise the pleadings, which is nice of him. So what are your thoughts on exploring and exploiting the concept of oppression as a special defense? I, I'm, I've got to be very frank. I have not seen oppression raised, and I'm sure others are doing it, and I'm glad you brought it up. I'm certainly going to explore it. Um, I've never seen it. I've, I have never seen it. This is the first time it came up, and it only came up uh, independently on the initiative of the judge in relationship to a, a different issue. Um, but he, in reviewing the conduct of the bank over the past several years, came up with the idea that the bank was engaging in oppression. And nobody had ever pled it. And I've never seen it pled. I mean, I've seen breach of fiduciary duty pled. I've, you know, I've seen... Right. Obviously, unconscionability gets pled. You know, I've seen breach of contract pled, but I've never seen oppression pled. And it seems to me that this might be a whole new area, very fertile, to start raising. I mean, one of the problems in raising unconscionability is judges are loath to go there. But if you have a fact-specific case where the bank is really engaged in wrongful conduct, then that seems tailor-made to bring in a claim for oppression, as well as a whole new lawsuit for damages, of course. So I thought I'd throw that out there. I'm, I'm certainly going to look into it. I honestly haven't seen it done. Um, I will. I will. Area. I am going to uh, email down to you a copy of this decision because it goes in great detail. I think you might find it amusing and enlightening. I'll send that on well, down to you. Well, given given the facts we've been discussing and the different acts that have led to this possible approach to unconscionability, I think they lend themselves to exactly what you're pointing out. Now, I'd like to move on to another area, and we keep talking, you know, in the introduction to this, uh, to today's, tonight's uh, per, uh, show, you reference consist- consistently the discussion of contract. But when you look at all these lawsuits, the only documents that ever seem to surface are a note and a mortgage. Those documents don't have any signature of a lender on them. So those aren't contract documents. Contract document would require signatures from both parties. So, so the question that I always raise is, where's the real contract? Because the note is not well, the debt. The and, note is nothing more than evidence of the debt. Right? Right. And the the question that there's a, a theory of law that I'm concerned about in this area, because I was actually, I, I also am, am, have raised this question of where is the signature, and this also speaks to when was the deal consummated. But there are, there are cases in Florida, I don't know about Connecticut, and again, this goes back to how jurisdiction-specific these issues are where it's deemed a pledge, and that's a problem for us. Uh, you know, we need to see if we can get past that. And how do you? Not sure. Uh, just exploring it now. It's, yeah. You know, the, 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 the cases that we're finding are showing that it's an enforceable uh, agreement as a pledge. Typically as a pledge, although there's no, there's no definitive evidence of consideration. Well, the evidence is when the transfer of money takes place and the, the tender of the house, the possession of the house takes place. And then you've got the evidence of the agreement and the consideration. Okay. And yeah. that's the argument. And that's, that's, a, that's a challenging issue. We've got to figure out whether it's... Well, the way, we the way I would go at it is I would tackle it through the issue, through the way the lender is named on the note. Because the lender is typically some entity that's renting its name. You know, it's a rental lender. That's not the real lender. There's a real lender somewhere else. 
but you've got this nominal lender who is, when you look at it, you know, somebody like American Mortgage Network or, you know, all of these clowns, their, their names are legion. They don't have any dough. They're a bunch of guys in a boiler room with green eye shades, you know, sitting there working a phone bank. You know, the money doesn't come from them. It comes from somebody else. It comes from, you know, Goldman Sachs, Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, you know, one of those guys. So if you've got some mouse house name on the note, and, the, and that's an accommodation name, and it's just a, nothing more than a bare nominee that somebody is putting forward in order to shield who the real lender is, then what evidence is there of the transaction? Money changed hands, but not between those people. So there's really no there's no enforceable contract that can be inferred using documents with a name on it from somebody who never loaned the money. I mean, that would be my argument. I, I want to run that by you and see what you think. Well, you know, Bob, I, I was listening to a recording of a, uh, a retired uh, banker the other day on another program where he was bringing up some very interesting points about a lot of stuff. And having been in that business a long time, he said what they actually do is when you get these documents done, they carry them over to the discount window of the uh, Federal Reserve or the Treasury, and they get money for them. And they actually don't just ask for the principal, they ask for the entire value of the contract. And then they take and they deposit that, and that becomes the initial investment for the entire pool that then they use as uh, an incentive to get other people to invest in the same thing. Now, these are not my words. This is what that gentleman said. What do you think about that? I don't know what to say. Randy, what do you think? I, I have nothing to say other than I'm, I'm concerned that we're being habituated to an industry practice that, that still doesn't seem probable or pro, uh, appropriate. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, the, the industry has gone so underboard from above board that it's no longer recognizable as a mortgage industry. It's basically a swashbuckler's industry. And uh, that has ominous implications. But once again, the old issue is you've got to convince the judge. And uh, so far, we haven't been doing all that hot in convincing the judges. You know, these cases never seem to go away. You know, they just keep coming and coming and coming. I've seen cases that get refiled four times in defeat three times, and then they come back for another lawsuit. They just don't seem to go away. So obviously our tactics are somehow uh, insufficient to deter uh, this whole brigandy band of brigands from keeping coming back before the court. And the anticipation is that the judges will eventually reward them with a judgment of foreclosure and or money damages. And that's ominous. You know, we're, we're just not getting the judge's attention Outside of New York, which I think you're getting a lot of attention from judges, seem to be quite a few cases coming down in three counties in New York, right around New York City. But I just don't see it happening much in New England. That's a problem. You know, how do we? That's why I raised the issue of oppression to see whether or not that would that would would gain any traction. I just see that as a whole new avenue of fertile ground to go after. All right. Uh, does that does that help you? Well, to some extent, you know, um, 
we'll just I, these are exploratory thoughts, and uh, perhaps it's something we could all kick around over the next bit. All right, I appreciate that. Uh, thanks a lot, Bob. We're going to uh, go to our caller from uh, South Nevada now. Oh, hi. So I love that show. Um, my name is Dawn Dillon, and I am a mortgage securitization auditor. Anyway, I've been working on uh, uh, through these uh, securitization loans, securitized loans, and mine in particular. And um, I guess my question in particular is MERS doing assignments and whenever the actual company, I heard you mention earlier, the actual company is is that the Aquin case where they're defunct, they're they're bankrupt. How can they? And and the and the it's an active the MIN is inactive. How do they get authority to do these assignments? How are these assignments valid if they this company is bankrupt? How is MERS holding be, being the note holder? And even on the assignments, they even state that they're the note holder. Can I give a stab to that? Yes, please. There, there's actually there's a there's a little bit of difference between the the company who's actively in bankruptcy versus a company that has ceased to exist entirely. And by that, in some cases, in the bankruptcy action, the trustee may authorize some parties to deal with some of the assets. In fact, the trustee has an obligation to preserve as many of the assets of the the party in bankruptcy as possible. So they're going to do what they can to have those assets handled. So there may, in fact, be in a case where the the party to the note is in, in, in bankruptcy, where they are actively working on, they still are active enough that they can manage those properties and they, uh, those assets, and they may, may, in fact, have a valid basis to assign a mortgage still. But if the company has completely ceased to exist at this point, the bankruptcy is done, the company no longer exists, has been liquidated, that's a different matter. Um, and that there, that is what the judge in Miami, Judge Butchko, found uh, was a problem with one of the problems with the Busset case was that company did not exist. The, the assignment of nor- mortgage she found to be void ab initio because MERS couldn't have been acting as a... Uh, 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 on behalf of the company because it didn't exist any longer at all in any form. So that may be the, the thing you need to look for one way or the other. Did somebody enforce, uh, uh, authorized to do this, or is it, do they no longer have that right at the time the assignment was created? Um, to further that, um, the scenario is that uh, the, immediately the um, – uh, servicer was Countrywide Home uh, Bank, and then the double stamp, which is famous, Michelle Jolander, double stamp on the note. Now, none of these assignments were done from, uh, and, and I was never notified that Countrywide was the new note holder either, only the servicer. They only notified me of that, and I made my first payment to them. So... In essence, immediately the uh, note traveled to Countrywide, so it didn't even matter about it being with that first company that went bankrupt because it was no longer their asset. It had become Countrywide's asset. But there's no assignment. 
so how come MERS is able to do an assignment they say they got authority from from the first first uh, note holder or the the bank that originate the originated that loan? How come they're able to skip over countrywide and have it left in blank and uh, not even reference countrywide at all on the uh, assignment? Well, Don, I think I think you have my argument well in hand, I would agree with you that they don't have the right to do that, that they would have to establish the by some show of chain of title and ownership, other than having a non-existing entity assign a mortgage after it ceased to exist. I mean, that's an important point. But the question, and this comes back to, to Paul's point in the earlier call, you still have to convince judges of this. And it's a, it's a rare thing. It's a hard, a difficult road to hoe to get a judge to understand that this, this it didn't exist, but it, it's, the, it's what we have to do. I think you're right. Well, MERS also, whenever I brought it to their attention, not MERS, but the bank, the Servicer Bank of America at the time, um, they did a new assignment saying that MERS was just the nominee. So they, they well, did a new assignment, but the... the uh, they had already did an assignment, so they didn't even have the authority to do a new assignment because it was inactive. The MIN was inactive, so now I have another assignment correcting the wording for MERS just to be only the nominee, not the note holder. It's the same assignment uh, other than, well, it's a corporate assignment. It's not just an assignment of deed of trust. Now it's a corporate assignment of deed of trust and well, without MERS being the note holder. Right. I think what you have to do is find out in your case if, in fact, the the entity that MERS is acting as nominee still exists. And if it doesn't exist, I think you have an interesting and strong argument. Um, but what what I would be afraid of is uh, if a a, a, a uh, subsequent entity that took over the, or merged or assumed the assets of a prior entity uh, is able to show the transfer of title they can or through merger or some other through valid documentation and show that they're the rightful owner then they've, they've avoided the need for the assignment of mortgage by the defunct entity so you may still have you still may be challenged because the the plaintiff may still be able to prove a right to enforce it in fact they should be able to if they if they do own it but the the documents that are void or invalid they still have to get over that somehow I've requested debt validation and accounting of such to uh, to show their evidence uh, that they are, in fact, the uh, holder in due course, and they have not been forthcoming. They they only keep showing me the note, the interest first note, every all the time. They just say, "This is our evidence. This is our." And is it a copy of the note, or is it the original? No, it's a copy. Oh, they I've asked them. I also have requested. The uh, co certified copy of an original, and uh, now I'm requesting that I be present while they certify it. <laughs> I'm trying everything, but I have another uh, question for you about commercial law. I was told you can write them and request that you you file with commercial law, and therefore, in commercial law, they have to give you the wet ink. Is that true? I'm not sure I'm following your question. I had heard through uh, the grapevine something about commercial law, that in commercial law, international law, 
that if you request the uh, notes in uh, original wet ink, they have to produce it. And if they don't, then they can't, if they can't produce that, if you request it, then you, um, then they can't be the note holder. I mean, they can't produce it. Yeah, you know, I'm 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 not sure what law you're referring to, but I think what you're referring to in is something that we do and try to we have to we have to do in Florida is they have to have the original note. They're supposed to have proof that they have the original note when they bring the case, when they initiate the case, and at the ending when they when the judgment is entered. And they have to show the original note to the judge to get a judgment in their favor. Alternatively, they can plead a lost note under Florida UCC law but that has several requirements that are above and beyond having a copy of the note, they, but, and they have to indemnify the, the, the defendant if they, if they prevail. But, uh, yes, eventually they have to have the original note in order to prevail, but it, I, I'm not sure if what you're asking they have to show to you, you know, at any time. They certainly need it. They need to prove possession at the time they bring the lawsuit in Florida, and they need to prove possession and show the original note to the court when they, when they get judgment. Well, whenever they certify this with their, you know, specialist, which I haven't gotten that far, but I'm doing, I'm, I'm helping someone who has, who they certified it. And you know what's peculiar about doing the forensics on her case is that it seems like there's a Kenya connection. Everyone's from Kenya. And uh, I've uncovered a lot of forensics about these robo-signers. And I truly feel that Americans wouldn't authenticate, you know, um, documents that didn't exist, so they've gone elsewhere to get people that would, and it's just odd that a lot of her forensics have a Kenya name or someone that I have, I have I've been able to research back to Kenya, and, uh, and another thing is, is that they've authenticated the same thing that the gentleman said before as a loan document specialist or whatever bogus name, they re uh, whatever title they have which they probably aren't in fact uh, any kind of, they probably don't have any kind of regulation or speciality or education that gives them any kind of knowledge of even what the documents are because on her paperwork they, they authenticated a, uh, a, an allonge as an endorsement and they have a marking for other and that should have been specified, specificity whenever you're authenticating, they should know the difference because the Wells Fargo, you know, Wells Fargo, the Wells Fargo manual even specifies on, in their manual, that a difference between an endorsement and a launch is very different. And they, they did not, they authenticated her a launch as an endorsement, and that in itself shows proof and evidence that this person has no education, I mean, what are her qualifications? And I think that that's a really good argument, too. All right. Thank you, Don. Um, please stay with us. If you have another question, uh, you can raise your hand again by pressing star 8. Let's see. It looks like we have someone from the far suburbs of San Diego that there has their hand raised. So why don't we see what you'd like to say? Hello. Hello Hi there, Greg. Here. How are you? <clears throat> Who Hello. is this? My name is Cindy. How are you? Hi, Cindy. This question is kind of for everybody that's on the phone, as well as the attorney. Um, I've lost two properties, and I bought several of them in 2005. I currently have another one. It's a rental. One of my properties was my primary home, and one was a rental. Now, now I have another one in Minnesota, 
and the appraisal the inflated appraisal is is for sure like a huge issue. I'm still about thirty thousand underwater with that property, and I've had it many many years. Okay, the good thing is it's always rented. But if I lose my tenant, um, I'm not sure that I can keep up the payments. So last August there was a second that was due, a balloon payment of twenty six thousand. And I couldn't pay it, and so I know that they're not going to foreclose because it's still underwater. And so my question was going to be to the group, if anybody in the group knows, um, you, they can email you, or if this attorney knows, I'm looking for somebody to try to help me negotiate to get rid of that uh, second uh, or reduce it and pay it off. Because if I can do that, I might be able to wrap the loan and uh, get a ten- uh, somebody in there that might want to buy it. Okay, well, hopefully uh, if anybody has any ideas on that, you can uh, send me an email at uh, thegallantgoose at gmail.com with a comment in there that uh, you would like to assist or provide a reference on that. That'd be great. Uh, I'll send you an email that it was me, okay, about the Minnesota property second. Thank you very much. I wonder if... The uh, and it may not be possible, but she may want to look into bankruptcy to uh, cram down the second and uh, on Chapter 13. Uh, I'm not a bankruptcy lawyer, but I understand there is a there is a possibility that she could pull out the first mortgage and and get uh, and be able to get out from under the second. Just an, a chance, an, op- an option. Uh, we're going to go to guest number eight. Uh, you're on the call. Please uh, say your name and uh, ask your question of uh, Randy Ackley. Go ahead, please. This is Sonny from uh, Georgia. Uh, good evening, and thanks for coming on the show. Hi there, Sonny. Uh, I've, I've got a question uh, concerning, uh, it was an article by uh, uh, Steve Vondren out in uh, California, and he's talking about uh, consummation and mentions a Ninth Circuit uh, case. It's actually a, a bankruptcy case which quotes a Ninth Circuit uh, decision which which says that the, uh, the loan is not consummated if you don't know the identity of the lender. Uh, and I, I think the case was uh, Jackson versus Grant. It was a Ninth Circuit decision. Uh, my my question is on applying a Ninth Circuit decision to Georgia. If if I understand it correctly, the state law governs, uh, and so, how, in your opinion, what would be the best approach on how do you uh, sort of bring that Ninth Circuit decision over to Georgia? Would there have to be a comparison between California law and Georgia law? To, to, to show the similarities? Well, I think it's a great question, and it highlights, again, how specific jurisdictions are. It's important to have your local jurisdictional law under under control. I think you're, what you're looking to do, what I would do in Florida, and this does not necessarily apply in Georgia, but what I would do in Florida if I found a persuasive argument in an opinion by a, a sister court or a different court is I would bring it to the court's attention. Of course, Here's the issue. If you've got cases directly on point that contradict that opinion in your local jurisdiction, the judge is almost certainly going to ignore even persuasive argument if it's contradictory to what 
what the, the law is, current law is in, in the jurisdiction, unless there's it's something else that persuades him to go with it, or her to go with it. So you need to, uh, but but there's it doesn't render it useless. It just means that you, you need to use it as persuasive argument and find uh, figure out a way to work that into your argument uh, on your on your issue in, in the court. Very good. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sonny. Uh, once again, everybody, please press star 8 on your telephone to raise your hand and go into the queue. I'm sure you have a question or a comment uh, for Randy. He's been extremely informative and helpful and has quite a wide variety of background knowledge here. And don't be timid. Don't be bashful. Also, if you're on the chat board, I'm checking up and down here to see if there are any new questions being typed in. I also reposted the uh, Dropbox link uh, for the documents that are being referenced by Randy within the program tonight so that you can go and download that zip file and uh, open them up and read them for yourself. Uh, Going back to uh, South Nevada, you're back on the call. I have another question about uh, the new case filing about if the securitization, if your loan was securitized, that they can't track the investor, then there's no note holder. I mean, did you see this new case that just passed? I'm, I'm, I'm not familiar with it. Where was it? Um, shoot. Uh, it was a federal, I think, something federal that uh, just passed saying that if your loan was securitized, that they and they can't track the investors if it was pooled, then there was they can't prove who holds the note. It's just it's, it's brand new. It just it came out like this week. So um, I just I don't know if you've seen it yet. Uh, I'd love if you can find the site and pass on the site. I'd love to read it. Uh, it sounds wonderful. Yeah, this is something new. It just just happened and. Uh, I have another question for you about the FERA Act, you know, the 10-year uh, appraisal that Bahara, the guy in New York, he really did some good things up there, the Attorney General for New York. But, I, you know, I feel like I have the, with mine, I'm within my 10-year statute. That's the one, that has 10-year statute. So if anyone has a 10-year from the time whenever they got their loan, and they can prove that the appraisal was inflated or fraudulent, that that act should help you. And have you ever used that? I have not. I have not. It sounds very good, though. Okay, well, um, I guess that's really, those were the two things that I I wanted to touch base on, two important things. Um, And I wanted to thank you so much. I really... And my my girlfriend told me about this, this Priscilla. Uh, she's uh, turned me on to a great show. I'm so excited. Well, we're glad you enjoy it. Hopefully, it will be of some use to you in the future. Thank you. I'll be in touch, and I'll, I will try to get you the information on that case. That, that would be great, Don. Thank you very much. And uh, Don, Don, if you'd like, uh, send that to uh, the Gallant Goose at gmail.com yeah T-H-E Gallant Goose G-A-L-L-N-T Goose dot no the Gallant Goose at gmail.com 
Alrighty, um, uh, moving on to uh, East North Carolina. Good evening, East North Carolina. Please state your name and what's your question for Randy? Hey, um, it's, it's Papergate. I've, I have more of a suggestion that um, a lot of people are trying to ascertain who is behind their, their loans. And one of the things that we noticed was that when you do the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac website and you plug in your basics like your address, your name, your social, everything else, and it populates back as nothing found, um, we have found that you need to go look at a lot of the documentation you've gotten from these uh, you know, servicers and, and various entities and make a collection of all account numbers everywhere, you know, any kind of numbers that they have um, you know, on the documents, the pieces of paper, and have the whole list with you and actually call Fannie Mae. And you get somebody on the line with Fannie Mae, and, you know, after they can't find anything from your name and social and stuff, don't stop there. Actually say, okay, how about this account number? And they're going to say no. And they say, well, how about that? How about this? How about that? We found that even with all the proprietary data of social, you know, address, addresses of all things and names, Fannie Mae didn't know that party, didn't know that uh, homeowner. So what we did is we plugged in all these different numbers that we found, like on the payoff statements and other paraphernalia that the servicer had provided in a litigation, and it turned out that there was like one number that was an investor, quote-unquote, investor number, and when we said that, Fannie Mae recognized it right off the bat and said, hey, yes, there it is, that's the account, and we're like, what? Uh, you know, Fannie Mae didn't even know, based on the address or, or the social or anything else, but yet this very cryptic number, they immediately opened it. So people need to go back, and, and if they don't know who they're dealing with and are suspicious that maybe one of the GSEs are behind it, just call them and just give them every number you have and be persistent. Because I think we need to start unearthing if, in fact, the GSEs do have, the GSEs being the government, we need to start going for this and not letting Fannie and Freddie Mac and Ginny make it away with it. Okay, goodbye. Another interesting thing, uh, looking down the board here, uh, no other typed in questions yet. Again, please raise your hand by pressing star 8 on your phone. We're approaching the end of the show, and uh, so please don't wait till the last minute. Um, somebody had suggested trying uh, Federal Rule of Civil Procedure, Rule 27. There's a pre-suit depot using administrative process to basically set up a, set of, a series of stipulations that you demand that the alleged lender or whoever is acting on their behalf or even just all of them to deny or agree to. And then if they don't answer that through non-response, you can actually perfect your claim based on the relations that you demanded at the end. And, of course, this is not just like send them one note and then say, hi, I caught you. It's actually a, a full systemic administrative process to give them every last possible opportunity to, to answer so you can make sure that it wasn't a mistake or an oversight on the part. Then you can supposedly go to the judge in court and ask for a ruling showing them the evidence and uh, some people consider that you can get a shutout that way what do you think about that have you ever 
heard anybody using uh, that kind of rule and that kind of a process, Randy? I've heard of similar use of, of, of similar rules to get the testimony and to be able to validate the the lawsuit before the lawsuit, and I think it makes sense. Um, I've not heard of it being done with regard to foreclosure, and it's a, a really interesting idea. Okay. Um, guest 8 has raised their hand. Uh, go ahead, please. Yes, uh, Randy. The uh, unconsci unconscionability, uh, do you think that that would uh, set aside a foreclosure? If someone is post-foreclosure, do you think the unconscionability uh, argument is something that would... Uh, set aside or, or, or be grounds to um, re reverse a foreclosure? You know, I, I think that's a very interesting question, and one I've been exploring with a friend, a couple of friends and colleagues. Here's the issue, and I think we mentioned it earlier, and again, this comes, I need to highlight, jurisdiction by jurisdiction, and it, especially in something like this. In Florida, we have a post-judgment, uh, a rule of civil procedure 1.540, that if you're within one year, um, if, a, if a judgment is voidable and you bring a, a, a motion to vacate and you've got grounds, uh, that's one level where you can get the judgment vacated. And, and I would argue that unconscionability clearly would fall into that category. Where it gets more difficult, uh, much more difficult, and, and it's a very, uh, still a very interesting question is, does the 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 whether or not the contract is unconscionable render a judgment void um that's a different issue i'm not sure um and in florida i know that i think we need to really explore this i think there's a very strong argument to be made that it certainly would render a, a judgment at least voidable whether or not it would re render it void of initio that's a different issue um and i i i'm not i don't know the answer to that at this point in florida and i think Every jurisdiction will have different answers, and you really need to get the local uh, spin on the issue to, to visit that. I would certainly visit it with an attorney who who uh, is interested and willing to explore the issue and research the issue because it's, it's worth looking into. Well, I, um, from what you were saying earlier about uh, Florida law, I think I've read in Georgia that it's similar in in the respect that uh, for, 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 a con for a contract to be un unconscionable, there may be a certain part of the contract that's unconscionable where the rest of the contract is allowed to be uh, held uh, uh, still valid. And so depending on the breach, I guess that's where we get into the void of bull part versus just completely void. Is that is that correct? I think it may. I think that lends itself. It's not exactly the same issue, but I think it lends itself to it. Yeah, I, I think that we need you need to look at it carefully uh, and, and and explore what the existing case law. I mean, an example of a part of the contract being uh, unconscionable and how it might work in foreclosure is I've got a number of cases where the court found that they weren't going to allow the plaintiff to foreclose on the property, but they weren't rendering the loan unconscionable as a whole. So what happened was the defendant was able to start making monthly payments again because the court wasn't going to allow the bank to just take the house. And so they rendered, they, 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 the court ruled the rest of the contract was, was enforceable, so the, the borrower still had, had a mortgage and had to pay the mortgage, 
so they weren't getting the house, uh, you know, uh, w- without paying for it. But on the other hand, the bank wasn't able to sell the house either and, and take the house. So it worked out that the un- unconscionable element was was neutralized by the court's reasoning, um, and the the an equity was reached where neither party prevailed as a result of an unbalanced level of power. Yeah, I, I think that I would want to approach uh, the. The, the whole contract being un- unconscionable in that the the, the money uh, creation uh, it, it, I, and I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, Walker Todd affidavit that's been going around uh, the, the the internet explaining how the the bank never actually uh, loaned you any of their money but created it did a conversion uh, of Different types of money, and in that in that respect, the the banks make the interest and the and the principal, uh, and they cloud your title. And in that respect, you know the whole thing would be unconscionable. Well, in fact, what I'm told is when the bank gets the note, even before the closing, they're able to to convert that note into ten times the amount of the loan. From the Federal Reserve is, is what I, is how I understand it. I mean, the whole system is a setup for those of us that are are trying to buy homes. Now, and I do want to make clear, none of us want the industry to disappear because we want to be able to borrow money to buy homes. On the other hand, the way it's being run now, the homeowners across the border are being victimized by the industry, and, and that's got to be fixed. Um, and it, it's just. On a, as a whole, the system is, is set up against borrowers at this point. It it, it almost appears that the uh, the monetary system would need to be changed as a as a overall solution. But until we get to that, we have to um, just keep fighting. Well, it's interesting. I agree. That- I agree. You know, at the beginning, the concept of the fractional banking system was based upon the concept that uh, there needed to be um, an adequate money supply for the expansion of the economy as it grew for the benefit of the people and the companies working to create that new wealth. However, what the banks figured out was how to use it for their own gain, and instead of using it to shovel back into the economy for the rest of the people... They used it to find a way to take over control of the entire economy for themselves. You know, in 1985, the banking system was 15% of the American gross national product. As of 2016, it is 51% of the gross national product. Now, they haven't done anything new in those 30 years. What's happened is that they've just leveraged all their accounting so that they could create more money out of thin air like they could legally under the charter, but they just kept it for themselves and used it for their own purposes, including you know lining their pockets with wonderful bonuses and all kinds of stuff that we've read about. Um, but, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And uh, once the, our dear former president, uh, Mr. Clinton, uh, killed Glass-Steagall, that was uh, the last firewall the bankers needed in order to just run roughshod over everybody. And uh, well, it's not my opinion. It's a historical record now. So 
that's what I wanted to add to that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm I'm out of questions. I think this is a super super call, and I just want to thank you again, Randy, for 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 coming on because I just think it's so helpful. Well, it's my pleasure. I hope it's been helpful. That's great. Okay, Sonny, thanks. Um, I guess uh, we're about last call here, and uh, Nevada, you're going to be it. Oh, hi, it's Dawn again. I just wanted to let you know, hi, (laughs) I just wanted to let you know that the accountable um, uh, clause that you were, administrative clause that you were talking about, George, I saw that online too, and George Tran, I think that's his name, he did that himself, and he, I think, is having litigation problems. I mean, uh, he's having issues for record. What he did was record uh, a status, I think, a satisfaction of mortgage or something based on them not doing their administration uh, duties to give him documentation within like three different letters he sent, and. I think he's having tr- trouble, legal trouble, for doing that. So be careful doing that process without going to court, like you mentioned, be- because you know you you got to be careful. It has to be by the law because you don't want to get in trouble. But I, I think that administration, uh, uh, I forget the name of it, uh, letters. These letters that you sent, I just put into a letter and addressed that they aren't doing their duty to uh, give me the accounting and uh, prove that they're the note holder. So, you know, I'm trying to do that, like you said, and then go to court, to use that in court to prepare my court case with these documents rather than trying to just go upon myself and do it like George suggests. And his video is actually pretty good. He has a video this George Tran gentleman that educates you on how the banking system is set up about like what you were just talking about and takes you through how the banks can loan on your money and on your deposits and on your name, that your name was actually used to get the money. And I, I found it really interesting. I just wanted to share that because you had brought that up. Okay. <laughs> That's great, Don. Can I just ask, were you talking about a qualified written request, or were you referring to, like, a well, rescission letter? Well, um, yes. He does a qualified written request, and he puts in about this um, law about administrative that you just mentioned, the clause about uh, that they have administrative duties to give you, within a certain time frame, all these answers. And if they uh, violate these, then they're basically breaking the law. I mean, it's a, it's a chilla, it's a rest of law. And, I mean, here they write these contracts with the borrower uh, agreements that like, we're liable for things that they put in there, if we're in default, Tilla and Russ make them liable, and all these laws make them liable. I don't know why the judges aren't making them liable for all the things that they're not providing us within the time frame of these qualified written requests, of these um, uh, debt validation letters. They're not doing anything in a timely manner unless you do contact the CFPB. But then even when you contact the CFPB, what are they doing? They're telling you you have to get an attorney, so they're not enforcing any of this. All this is is just 
taking you to give you evidence to go to court that they're not doing their administrative processing of the request by the borrower, and I, I think that is right there is showing evidence that that they're in default themselves. They're in default for not providing us our request. And I don't understand why the judges aren't holding them to the letter of the law. That's what's upsetting. Right, and you know, it's interesting, Randy. That might also become another element of a, of an unconscionable claim, right? I think that's a valid point. The The contract is based on the existing law, and that law requires them to provide this information. They're not doing it. So they're not upholding their end. Does that is that an element of... of, of, of Uneven power. I think so. And if we read Jezinowski properly, um, you know, God rest his soul. Uh, yeah. Scalia, you know, made it quite clear in their interpretation unanimously that a Taylor rescission is a non-judicial act, and it right. has uh, as the power of operation of law, which anybody who lives in a non-judicial state understands that if you just get a letter from the lender or the servicer, bang, you're in foreclosure and you didn't need a judge to say so. Because that's how those laws are set up. And for some reason, the banks just don't like the fact that the same kind of a concept can work in reverse. And uh, the lawyers and the judges are all just, you know, the hair on the back of their neck is standing up. Because they're like, oh my God, if that's true, you know what that means dot, dot, dot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Like, oh, the sky is falling. As a matter of fact, I think uh, Neil actually pointed out uh, on one of his old, old blogs a year ago um, that uh, banks are actually now taking out and being offered and taking out rescission insurance, Taylor rescission insurance, so that after they set everything up, in addition to everything else that they're securitizing, they're taking out a policy just in case the Homeowner Act takes an act and does that and uh, the servicer or whoever drops the ball and doesn't get it responded to in time so even think about that even if you do a rescission you've got an insurance policy you get paid <laughs> well they had insurance policies on the uh, pooling and servicing agreements and they didn't they disclosed to the investors that hey this is a risky loan you need insurance. Why didn't they disclose to the borrower that, hey, you're, you're getting a risky loan. Why don't you get insurance? I mean, why is it always for the banks? Why is it always on their end? And if that's not a full disclosure then, that is misleading and misleading the public that, you know, hey, get this loan and, and not even disclosing the interest-only product, which was never disclosed. Now it has to be disclosed. Isn't that an issue that... Interest only is actually a very risky loan, but the borrower didn't understand fully that risk involved, and nor did they know that it was going to be securitized. And the investor that was making the investment got the disclosure that it was a risky loan based on collateral appraisal, collateral appraisal, not based on, hey, can the borrower pay this side? No. Is there enough equity in this loan? to make this fly so I can fly under the radar that this is an okay deal that we're doing. All righty. Uh, we're almost done here. Thanks, John. Uh, we're going to go back to North Carolina, and that will be our last one. Go ahead. 
Hey, uh, can you uh, give Randy an opportunity to discuss uh, with us what he perceives is how we're going to get this resolved across the board? I know he's uh, his jurisdiction is Florida, and um, you know his representation is in Florida. If he's got any suggestions about how we can, you know, get people from other states to kind of help us out because this is ridiculous. You know, we're from all over the United States and this poor guy's in Florida having this conversation alone and he needs help. And um, I'd like to hear what he thinks would be help. All righty. That's a, and that's a, thank you very much, Paper Good. And uh, that's a great uh, point to uh, give you back the floor here for a wrap up, Randy. Um, You can take all the things we discussed this evening and, Roll them together, and how do you how do you want to answer that and, and wrap up for the evening? I wish I had a simple answer. I will say that, and I mentioned this on Neil's show uh, several times. I've been getting calls from all over the country for people who want, and this is why I keep hammering on this point. I don't mean to be a broken record, but every jurisdiction is, is, has its own rules and laws, and so I can't help people outside of Florida. But I do think that, I mean, you know, I, I don't want to get political, but Something like if the Dodd-Frank law had been done properly without some had actually uh, been in, 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 instituted in a way with rules that would start helping reinstate the value of not out of the industry to wholesale uh, uh, um, run rampant over the laws that, that protected us. Yeah, I respect and kind of conservative. I thought I think that the rules before securitization uh, did protect us. Your comment on Glass-Steagall, uh, Greg. Uh, you know, a little bit of regulation may be helpful here, uh, no matter whether you're, what your political bent. The the industry now is set up in a way that you can't be a, a homeowner and a, a mortgagor without worrying that you're being screwed, either by the way the market's being manipulated or in the way your mortgage is being handled, or you can't take a mortgage. And and this is one of those things that goes back to one of your original questions, Greg, uh, are people who are current on their loans victims. And I I think they are for another reason that I didn't mention earlier, and that is nobody should be confident that even if they're paying their mortgage in a timely way, that they're not going to be foreclosed on. Because there are a number... um, not a majority, clearly, but there are a number of people who are being foreclosed on who shouldn't be foreclosed on. They, either they weren't told who their new servicer was, so they weren't able to get the payments to the proper proper um, bar, uh, lender, or or uh, they 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 are being asked to pay mortgages that are outrageous compared to the true value of their homes. I mean, it's just incredible. So maybe we need to revisit the actual national regulation of of the industry and visit whether that can't address the problems that the borrowers are being exposed to as a result of the securitization and the sale of derivatives and the trusts and all of the mess that we're now, we now, now find, find ourselves in. Now, I'm a trial lawyer. That's my answer. I'm not a legislator and I'm not a financial guy, but that's kind of how I see it at this point. I hope that helps. Well, I think that does. Um, wow, it's a lot of stuff we covered tonight. Um, can't wait to go back and listen to the recording and uh, try to remember what the heck we talked about. (laughs) Anyway, that's all the time that we have tonight, folks. Uh, Everybody's been great. Some wonderful questions and comments. Please don't forget to check out the comments and resource links that were provided on the chat board. 
And, of course, you do that by going to chatgrabber.com and then selecting uh, TalkShoe 139335 and then selecting episode 37, which is tonight. We want to thank Randy Ackley for coming on the show tonight and for sharing with us such helpful information, great ideas with uh, all of us. As always, we encourage everybody to email us at thegallantgoose at gmail.com with questions, comments, or suggestions for future guests. And we hope tonight's program has been helpful. Again, on behalf of everyone, uh, Randy, thank you so much. This has been a great experience, and thanks to the good questions. All right. And with that, we are going to say good night, and we will see you all next week. Take care, everybody. This is the Gallant Goose and Friends, airing live from coast to coast and around the world on Thursday nights at 645 Eastern here on TalkShoe.com, program number 139335. This is Big Papa Stanley reminding y'all when it comes to saving your house, don't let the bank of blues stop you from getting all your clues. We thank y'all for being here tonight. I was born in Illinois. In a place they call Chicago. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.